Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm a student at Bridgewater State in Massachusetts. I share a dorm with my roommate, Wallace. We both major in computer science, and that's all we've ever talked about on the rare occasions that we actually speak to one another. We don't have much in the way of common ground. You see, Wallace is an odd guy. He's very socially awkward and doesn't have many friends, if any at all. I've only ever seen him talking to his professors, and one time the janitor. It's safe to say that Wallace is a recluse. Because of this, I didn't know much about him. I would love for the guy to open up more, but I'm not sure how to go about doing that. Besides, I have enough on my plate as it is between exams and the struggle of day-to-day finances. As cliche as it might sound, ramen is a popular meal on campus. Another one of Wallace's quirks is his obsessive-compulsive nature. He conducts himself in a very specific manner and has his daily routine mapped out to a T. It never changes. When he wakes up, he brushes his teeth, makes sure to gargle and spit exactly three times. He then puts on a striped shirt followed by khaki pants. His wardrobe never changes. He always arrives to class five minutes early and turns in his assignments a day before they're due. That's how it's always been. How do I know all of this? Well, being a socially awkward hermit, Wallace didn't tell me these things. I don't think he's even aware that his routine is a byproduct of OCD. I'm not claiming to know exactly what causes Wallace's actions, but I do minor in psychology. It's just something I've picked up on during the two years I've lived with the guy. It's almost impossible not to notice. Knowing Wallace's usual behavioral patterns, I noticed that something wasn't right. He began sleeping in his clothes, not brushing his teeth, and not passing in his assignments on time. Eventually, he stopped sleeping in the dorm altogether. After a day of not seeing him, things started looking grim. Despite not knowing Wallace all that well, I became worried. Depression and suicide rates are at an all-time high for our age group. I didn't want the poor guy to do something stupid. That worry justified me hacking into his laptop to see what he'd been up to. It was the only thing I could think to do. In finding his laptop and turning it on, I felt like a fool. The thing was as clean as a whistle, at least to my eyes. You see, though I pride myself in my tech know-how, Wallace is far more adept in the field. It was safe to say that I wouldn't find a shred of evidence as to where he might be or what he'd been doing. No journal entries, no browsing history, no nothing. Feeling anxious, I thought about any other potential ways to continue my hunt for the truth. And that's when something clicked. Like I said before, 
I sometimes saw Wallace talking to the janitor in the halls. He was the only person I had ever seen him speak with at length. It was possible that he knew something about Wallace's state of affairs. Later that night, I exited my dorm room and wandered the halls. Eventually, I found Chuck, the janitor. I tried to be gentle when confronting him, as he had his back to me and was known to be hard of hearing. Still, when I tapped him on the shoulder, he jumped. Holy cheese balls, you scared me half to death. Chuck laughed through his bushy gray mustache. What can I do for you, son? I told Chuck about my predicament and how I was concerned for Wallace, having not seen him in a while. Chuck's happy expression transformed into a look of unease and tension. He seemed to know a bit more than I did. Well, here's the thing. Wallace is a good kid, and we do chat from time to time. I happen to know where he might be, but I wouldn't feel comfortable blurting out the details of his social life to anyone who asked, even if you are his roommate. Social life? Wallace didn't have a social life. I pressured Chuck into letting me on the secret. I really laid it on thick, expressing a great deal of concern for Wallace's well-being. Being the nice old janitor that Chuck is, he eventually gave in. Okay, okay, I understand. Just please don't tell him that I told you, okay? I nodded, eagerly waiting for him to reveal Wallace's whereabouts. Wallace has been feeling really down lately. He's got no one to talk to but me. The kid wanted some friends, people that they could hang out with and talk to, you know? I listened closely for the details I so desperately sought after. So Wallace went on something called, uh, what was it? The Deep Web? On there he found a group of people, they called themselves Clan of the Red Wolf or something like that. They invited him to one of their meetings, that's probably where he is right now. He seemed pretty excited when he told me about it. In fact, it's all he's been talking about for the past week. There. That was it. That was the bit of info I needed. The key to finding Wallace. I thanked Chuck and gave him a good night wave as I ran back to my dorm room. From the sounds of it, Wallace got himself involved with another group of people who share in his interest, and eventually they invited him to hang out in real life. I had their quirky name, the Clan of Red Wolf, and that's all I needed to find them on the deep web myself. Soon enough, I was able to find my missing roommate. It took quite a while, but I finally managed to find a deep web form pertaining to the so-called clan. It contained nothing but a description and a series of videos. Here is the description as it appeared on the site. Welcome to your new belief system. We are the clan of the Red Wolf, and we're here to help. There are seven educational videos on this site, each tailored to a specific belief we want to share with you. You're asked to watch these programs to understand our doctrine. If you make it to the last one, you'll be invited into our den. Good luck. The summary was bizarre, but nothing less than what I'd expected. Scrolling further, I noticed that all the videos were titled similarly. Day 1, Day 2, and so on. Naturally, I watched them. The whole series reminded me of old war propaganda. It was made in the style of a vintage cartoon starring a wolf as the main focus. Not a normal wolf, but a cartoon caricature version of one. Picture a character similar to Wile E. Coyote. In each video, the wolf learned a new clan value from the campy male narrator. Not unlike old cartoons, the wolf comically goes against the narrator's wishes and suffers the consequences before learning his lesson. Every video ends with the narrator saying, Join the pack. You never have to feel alone again. I guessed that was the selling point for Lonely Wallace. 
I will share with you a bit of the transcript from each video, along with any points of interest. Video 1 was wildlife. Treat flora and fauna with dignity and respect. They're people too. Trees provide you with the air you breathe, and animals share the earth with you, keeping you from being alone. They deserve more than you ever will. The wolf relieves himself on a tree. The tree falls on top of him, crushing his head and revealing the blood and brain matter inside. Video 2 was thicker than blood. Your blood is the most important material in your earthly vessel. The clan requires a sample upon joining our order. This is a requirement for all pledges. Our blood must flow as one for us to work together and save the planet. The wolf enters a room full of cloaked figures, presumably clan members. All members are in line, giving blood samples. The wolf refuses to have his blood drawn and walks away. A cloaked figure sneaks upon him and slices his throat with a dagger. The video focuses on the wolf bleeding out for a few moments before fading to black. Video 3 was Obey or Suffer. Remember what happened to our friend when he didn't give his blood to the cause? He didn't obey our rules, and so he's had to suffer the consequences. Remember, the clan's laws are important. You must obey or perish. Trust me, it's worth it. The video then showed the wolf bleeding out again, only now a few cloaked figures are on top of him, stabbing his corpse repeatedly. Video 4 explained the vow of secrecy. The clan of the Red Wolf is often misunderstood. Because of this, it's important to never tell anyone of our existence under any circumstances. You may only speak about clan activity with other clan members. Break this rule, and you will perish. The wolf is shown taking to his wolf pals and showing them his new cloak. A cloaked figure walks in frame with what looks like a semi-automatic weapon and opens fire. The wolves fall to the ground dead. The cloaked figure gives a thumbs up before the video ends. Video 5 was Learn and Understand. If you're allowed into our inner sanctum, you'll be greeted with knowledge. We abide by the world of the Red Wolf, and you will too. You'll be expected to learn and understand his teachings. Otherwise, you will fail, not only the clan, but the entire world. The wolf is seen in a classroom environment taking a test of some sort. He turns it into a cloaked teacher and receives an F. The entire class points and laughs at him, then pulls out a plethora of medieval weaponry from their robes. They then proceed to close in on the wolf. The wolf swallows the lump in his throat before the video ends. Video 6 was Tasks and Rituals. As a new recruit, you'll be asked to carry out various tasks ranging from the mundane to the fantastic. Most of these missions will involve fetching ingredients for our rituals. As boring as they may sound, it is the most important thing you can ever do for the clan. Rituals are what give the clan power. Without this power, we cannot hope to rid the world of what plagues it. The wolf fails to bring ingredients to clan member for ritual. Jump cut to a wolf being sacrificed on a black altar atop a pentagram carved into the floor. He's beaten, cut open, and eventually torn apart by his fellow clansmen. Video 7 was about mortals. When accepted as a full-fledged clan member, you are no longer considered human. You'll be one of us. From that point forward, you are discouraged from any and all human interaction, unless it's deemed necessary to the cause. 
Humans are vile, filthy, disgusting, and dangerous creatures. We seek to exterminate them once and for all. Any human who knows of our existence and isn't deemed worthy enough to join must be killed. Nature is your only friend. The wolf is walking down a main street-like environment and can be seen waving to everyone he sees. He comes upon a clan member who then pierces his gump with a long blade and tosses him aside in the road where he is then run over by numerous cars. The content of the videos was incredibly jarring. I almost couldn't believe that such a cult could actually exist, let alone that Wallace would join them. He must have really been lonely. The last video exited with the same join the pack spiel and then faded out to a screen with a series of numbers. I assumed this was my invitation into the den, perhaps an encrypted set of coordinates leading to the clan's lair. That, I thought, must have been where Wallace had gone. Just as I was in the thick of things, something hit me. One of the videos stated that you couldn't talk to anyone about the clan under any circumstances. But Wallace had talked to Chuck. That didn't make any sense. Wallace was a stickler for rules. Another fact hit me. The video stated that you could only talk about clan activity with other clan members. What if Chuck was one of them? Chuck could be stationed at the college to recruit members, and he simply nudged Wallace in the right direction. He could have been playing dumb with me when I questioned him. So either Chuck was a clansman or Wallace broke a cardinal rule. Neither theory held much water. If Chuck was a member, then why would he have told me anything about either recruiting or killing me? And if Wallace was so eager to be accepted into a strict cult, then why would he disobey their wishes? I couldn't make much sense of either angle. I eventually gave in to the notion that perhaps Wallace simply disregarded the rules in lieu of his excitement. He was finally going to have friends, so he had to tell someone. This didn't completely sit well with me, but I had to get back to cracking the code. I didn't have time to dwell on the uncertainties. And just then, there was a knock at my dorm room door, followed by a voice. It's Chuck, the janitor. I'm here to tidy up your room. Chuck never cleaned dorm rooms. It wasn't part of his job. I'm all set, I yelled, hoping he would leave me be. The knocking ceased. There was a long stretch of silence, followed by a soft, metallic creak. The doorknob was turning. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My brother is dead. As I sit looking into the tattered brown box that sits in my lap, I know that now. And while I know the thing called Candleheart is to blame, I still feel like it's really my fault. It was my suggestion 
that put us in its path in the first place. Two years ago, our father passed away. He was only 61 years old, but he'd had a bad heart for a number of years, so when I got the call that he had died in his sleep, it was terrible news, but not really a shock either. I'd gotten on a plane the next morning, and when I arrived, Michael picked me up from the airport. He was a good little brother, as little brothers go, and while he was 10 years younger than me at 24, we'd always gotten along well and remained friends even when I moved across country after college. We talked on the trip back to the house, alternating between catching up on the latest happenings in each other's lives and talking about our father. The rhythm continued over the next few days when we had time alone together, which wasn't much between helping our mother and dealing with friends and relatives. That rhythm continued over the next few days when we had time alone together, which wasn't much between helping our mother and dealing with friends and relatives. But after the funeral was done and the last of the mourners had left, our mother had announced she was going to go to sleep for a good long while, no doubt aided by the pills I had seen our Aunt Clara pressing into our mother's palm after the graveside service. So me and Michael decided to head into town and go get something to eat. It was while we were eating hot wings and reminiscing about our dad and the idea of taking a camping trip came up. Our father, who was no real outdoorsman, had always enjoyed camping for some reason, and when we were growing up, he would always try and get us out to go camping with him. In truth, we only went a few times over the years, but I still remember how happy it seemed to make him. Those camping trips seemed part of some idyllic familial fantasy to him, and no matter how much our mother protested the bugs or myself and Michael argued, he would always bring it up once or twice a year like a car salesman trying to entice us into another test drive. Looking back on it now, I admit to feeling some guilt that we hadn't gone more when he suggested it, and I know that guilt is part of what prompted me to ask Michael if he wanted to go camping that weekend. I expected him to laugh or make an excuse why we couldn't do it, but instead he started nodding right away. He still lived at home, and he said that a couple of days away from there, assuming Mom was doing okay, would suit him just fine. We started making plans, and when we got back to the house, we found enough camping gear in decent shape that our costs, aside from gas and food, would be minimal. So after talking it over with our mother and making sure she was good for the next few days, we headed out off to the next morning on our camping adventure. I had wanted to go to an established camping area with designated camping sites and a building that contained toilets and showers, but Michael convinced me that it wouldn't be in the spirit of things to half-ass it. We needed to go somewhere off the beaten track where we weren't surrounded by people and had to squat, take a dump. His argument was less than eloquent, but I got his point. We wanted it to be a trip our dad would think was really cool. So he found us a large state park covered by a forest about a hundred miles away. After downloading maps and considering our options, we settled on a loose plan that involved parking on the west side of the park, hiking in about ten miles to a smallish body of water called Winter's Lake, and then setting up camp. Day two would be hanging out, hiking around a bit more, and then heading back out. We got to the large gravel parking lot by 10 that morning, and after adding the food and water we had bought on the trip up to our backpacks, we headed east into the forest. Despite it being a bright and sunny day, parts of the forest were surprisingly dark, and the large hardwoods that loomed overhead blocking out much of the light as we traveled along what looked like some kind of 
pig path in a generally easterly direction. I had some concerns with us getting lost, but Michael did a surprisingly good job of keeping us on course, periodically checking the compass he had brought and calling out a couple of spots where he could see what looked like landmarks from the map. The past few days, seeing him help our mother and remain patient and kind with all the other mourners had helped me appreciate how much my brother had grown up. He could still be immature at times, and I know he still relied on me for some things because I was his big sister, but he had become a man, and a good one at that. I was thinking about that, and looking off into the trees when I ran into the back of him. He stumbled a step forward and then turned to look at me. Watch it, you gave me a flat tire. He shot a mock frown before grinning as he pointed. Look over there. I followed his finger and saw that fifty yards to our left, there was what looked to be the ruins of some old large house. It was surrounded by trees and bushes so thick that it was easy to overlook, and if we had been a bit further away, I doubt we would have seen it at all. I would have preferred that, because the place looks creepy. Looks like the start of a horror movie. I glanced at Michael, seeing the look on his face. No, sir. No way, we're not going to be the dumb bitches that go explore the abandoned house and get eaten by the hillbilly zombies that live there. We're going to be the smart bitches that keep moving and go eat s'mores. His frown was genuine now, but it looks badass. He pointed at it again as though to drive home his point. Look at how badass that is. I shook my head. You know what's not badass? The snake bites. Falling through rotten floorboards. The aforementioned hillbilly zombies... Let's go. Fine. You suck. Robbed us of a really cool story and pictures, too. Hope you're proud of yourself. I nudged him forward. I think you'll survive. Another half hour and we're at Lake Winter. It was actually a bit larger than I thought it would be, and while calling it a lake was still somewhat grandiose, I had to admit that there was something striking about it. The shore was made up of small gray rocks we had not seen anywhere else in our walk here and the water itself was a placid, steely blue. Compared to the brownish-green ponds I was used to seeing growing up just a hundred miles south, it seemed almost like the rocks and water had been plucked from another continent, maybe one with Vikings. Turning to Michael, I gestured toward the lake. See? This is cool. He looked skeptical. Eh, it's alright, yeah. It's kind of weird. Do you think it was man-made? I shrugged. I guess it's possible, but it would cost a ton for something this size, and given that it's a state park, wouldn't there be some kind of sign-up or some marker saying who donated the money for it or something? Either way, let's get back up on the grass and set up the tents. My ass does not need eight hours of sleeping on those hard little rocks. We set up camp and got a fire going, and after taking a long walk around the oval perimeter of the lake, we settled into cooking hot dogs as twilight began to darken into night. While I was tired, I wasn't ready to go to sleep yet, and I was having to fight the urge to pull out my phone and start playing a game or watching a video. I heard Michael grunt and looked up from my plate to see he was already poking at his phone disconnectedly. I have like one bar. My browser has shit on itself and died twice. I scowl at him. Good. We're supposed to be out here camping and having family bonding time. He flipped me off and stuffed the phone back in his pocket. Okay, well, I gotta go take a piss, so don't do any bonding without me while I'm gone. With that, he jumped up and headed back off toward the trees. 
When I saw him continuing to go to the hundred yards or so to the edge of the forest, I thought about yelling that he didn't actually have to piss on the tree. Instead, I just shook my head and went back to eating my hot dog. About a minute later, I heard Michael yelling something to me. I looked up and saw him at the edge of the trees, shifting from the ball of one foot to another, as though trying to get a better look at something with his flashlight. I yelled back and asked what he said. Faintly, I heard him respond, I think I see something. A light or something? It's closer now than it was. For whatever reason, I felt my stomach go cold. Sitting down my plate, I stood up and walked a few steps from the campfire, my eyes locked on Michael's barely illuminated form. Michael, come back from there. Come on, please. I saw him turn toward me, and then something made him turn back to the woods. I heard him yell, What the fuck? Oh, God, no, fuck! Started running toward me. I was going to ask what was wrong, but then I saw the figure stepping out of the brush. At that distance and in the dark, I couldn't make much out of it. The only light that touched it came from the partial moon glowing spectrally above the lake and some kind of flickering light on the shape itself. But from what I could tell, it looked like a large man, and my desire to encounter some large stranger in the middle of nighttime woods was less than zero. As Michael made his way closer to the firelight, I could see by his face that he was terrified. I was going to ask who it was or what was wrong, but he was already yelling again. We've got to go. Run. Leave everything and just run. He grabbed my arm and started pulling on me, but I resisted for a moment, wanting to understand. What? What is it? What's wrong? I glanced back at the approaching figure, and I could only make out slightly more detail. His feet seemed abnormally large and strange, and it looked as though he was wearing some kind of hood or cloak. I could see something billowing behind them. But the oddest thing was the light he was holding. It was flickering like some kind of flame, and I guessed it must be a lantern of some sort, but in the dark it almost looked like it was part of him. Michael yanked my arm again. It's some kind of monster. I don't know, but it looks fucking real. Let's go. This time he pulled enough to propel me forward, and I started running with him. I still had in the back of my mind it might be some kind of elaborate joke, whether Michael was in on it or not, but he looked scared enough that I wasn't taking any chances. We ran towards the woods, Michael moving his grip down my hand as we hit the brush at the edge of the clearing and kept going. I glanced back and saw the figure had changed course and was heading towards us, but at a measured, almost leisurely pace. Good, I thought. Please let him keep going slow. We ran a few more feet before Michael looked back and came to a stop. He's gone. I looked around panting and saw that he was right. In the span of less than ten seconds, it had gone from walking towards us across the clearing to vanishing into thin air. That didn't do anything to make me less afraid. Keep moving, Michael. Let's get out of here. We started back running, trying to strike the right balance between speed and not breaking something in the dark. We only had the one flashlight between us, with mine having been left back in the tent near the lake. The blackness of the woods felt like a palpable thing, some kind of thick, cool liquid with weight and viscosity we had to push against as we made our way forward. Michael would periodically stop and glance at his compass, and both of us were constantly scanning our surroundings for any sign of an approaching shadow or the strange glow of firelight. 
We made the journey back to the car in a fraction of the time it had taken us to leave it, and when we stepped out onto the gravel, I stopped to catch a few lungs worth of gasping breath. Still bent over, I started fumbling in my pocket for the keys when I heard Michael screaming. My head snapped up and I saw him trying to backpedal from the thing that had somehow pursued us across ten miles without being seen. At this distance, and with the parking lot illuminated by the pale moonlight, I could see the creature much better. It looked like a man, or at least the crude, monstrous approximation of one. It stood around seven feet tall, its head and torso partially covered by some kind of thin and rotting shroud. The skin underneath looked like some kind of dark stone or clay, and in the darkness with arms and legs of the same material, but bearing the appearance of hard, twisted appendages like the branches of some sinister-looking tree dwelling deep in the heart of a forgotten and decaying swamp. It reached one of those arms out and grasped Michael's arm in a clawed hand that turned his screams of terror into screeches of pain. He's biting me! He's biting me! I was already in motion to pull Michael free, but his words sunk in enough for me to find them strange. I could see a little of the thing's face, but I didn't see its mouth anywhere near my brother. I grabbed Michael's other arm and pulled, afraid it would do little good. To my surprise, I saw the monster let go as I tugged, and in the dim light, I saw something my mind didn't want to accept. The palm of the thing's hand was filled with a black void that dripped with my brother's blood. When I thought about it later, I realized I had also glimpsed silverly teeth retreating back into that oval hole in its hand. Small and sharp, I had saw the glittering of two rows in the moment before I turned away and pulled Michael with me toward the car. I expected to be caught at any moment, that horrible biting grass falling onto my shoulder or the back of my neck, but nothing came. We were inside the car and I turned the headlights on, and I could see that the creature was still standing where we had left it, silently staring at us. The lower half of its body was illuminated by the lights, showing thick legs that ended in something more akin to roots than any kind of feet. And above the line of cars' lights, the fire flickered on. The monster wasn't holding a light. It was the light. In the right upper part of the thing's chest, where a heart would lay beating in a man, there was a hole over half a foot wide that went all the way through its body from front to back. In that hole, a large yellowish-brown candle burned brightly, illuminating whatever material made up the surrounding flesh and a portion of the tattered shroud that draped down the creature's back. I found myself growing transfixed by that flame, and it was a shove for Michael that woke me out of it. Nodding, I threw the car to drive and spun out of the parking lot. Michael was understandably hysterical, and I was too, though I tried to keep control for both of our sake. We debated going to a hospital, a hotel, or home. We both quickly rolled out home until we had some time to calm down and make sure we wouldn't be followed further. I pushed for the hospital, but Michael said that he wanted to get a room some ways away from the park and look at his arm before we made a decision on that. I thought about arguing further, but given his states, I relented. I drove another 30 minutes and then pulled in at a decent-looking motel. When we got into the room, I took him to the bathroom and we looked at his arm. I knew immediately we had made a mistake and he needed to go to the hospital. It looked like a small chunk had been ripped out of his arm. 
the edges of it ragged with small holes as though the thing had been biting and raking its teeth into his flesh trying to find a good purchase to tear apart free. The perimeter of the hole was also looking darker than it should with several sinister looking lines starting to push out from the wound itself. We have to get you to a doctor, now. He was already starting to shake his head and I stopped him. No, it's not a conversation. You could have an infection or be poisoned, and we'll be as safe or safer at a hospital than we are here. As the last words left me, I heard the front door of the room swing open. Leaning and looking out the bathroom door, I saw the thing standing in the doorway, the lights in the room showing me more of it than before. I let out a scream and shoved the bathroom door shut, keeping my weight against it, but I knew it wouldn't be any real barrier to that thing. I knew I had locked the room door and put the chain on, but it had somehow walked in like those locks didn't exist. I looked for a bathroom window, but there was none. I had time to look into Michael's terrified eyes and see that he knew what was out there before the door was flung open, and I was shoved out of the way and into the wall. Michael began to squeal like some kind of caught animal as the thing reached into the tiny room and grabbed him by the forearm, casually dragging him out despite my brother's desperate attempts to hold on to the sink and then the door frame. I got back up and launched myself past Michael and onto the creature's back. I tried to find purchase on it, digging my fingers into its flesh and finding it to be somewhat yielding even as I gagged. The smell as I broke the surface of its skin was like that of rotten meat and the texture of the material itself seemed to be some kind of hard wax. Pausing for a moment, its free arm bent backwards and grabbed me by the neck, pulling me from its back. It swung me around until I was facing it. I could distantly feel the hard rasp of teeth scraping the skin on the side of my neck eagerly without actually biting down, but my thoughts were preoccupied by its face. Any crude shapings or strange, blunt lines of its body did not carry over into that face. There was a well-shaped, long-curving nose over thick, betraken lips that tipped upward at the ends as it looked at me. Its eyes were some kind of glowing stone, almost like large fire opals, given some inner iridescence, flaring in time with the terrible sound it made deep in the black hollows of its throat. It was chuckling at me. I was barely able to breathe, but I was going to try and plead for my brother and myself, despite the cruelty and malignant pleasure I saw etched across its features. But then it flung me aside, sending me crashing through the front window of the room a moment before dragging Michael out the door. For a few seconds, my world flashes in noise and pain. I knew I needed to pull myself together to try again, but I couldn't make my body work right. Rolling over on my side, I saw the thing pulling Michael with him, the keening animal wail having dwindled to a defeated muffled groan. As I watched, I saw the thing and Michael sinking into the earth as they proceeded forward, almost as though they were walking into the tide of some earthen sea. I let out a scream and I saw Michael reach out his hand to me feebly for a moment before they both disappeared into the ground. I lay on the concrete outside the room, broken and bleeding for some time before anyone came out and called 911. I went to the hospital, and the next day I had to tell my hysterical mother that I had somehow lost her son. I tried to tell people the truth of what happened, but they looked at me sympathetically and talked about head trauma and shock. So then I told a more 
palatable version of a man attacking us at our campsite and then the motel and that some level of search parties and investigation, but of course, nothing was ever found. Two years have passed since that time, and despite my own efforts, I never found my brother. I've been back to those woods a dozen times, but things are never as they were on that trip we took. I never see the ruins of that old house, and Winter Lake is a small, yellowed pond, not what we camped on near the night Michael was taken. And I've never seen Candleheart again. I know he's called Candleheart by some because of the research I've done. There are very few references, even in the darker and more eccentric corners of the internet, but I found a forum post that described the legend of a monster with mouths on its hands that abducted and sacrificed people. The comments were rife with more random speculation and odd tales about rituals and what motives of the monster really were, but no one had anything verifiable or frankly credible sounding. there was one brief reply that caught my attention. Its name is Candleheart. It feeds the dark things of the earth for its own profit and waits for winter's return. I tried to contact the poster, but I never received any response. And while the name Candleheart makes sense, I've never found another reference to it in relation to the monster. After a year of trying, I'm ashamed to say I gave up. It was too hard to keep living every day, reliving what had happened to Michael, looking for some clue or sign that might help him, lying to myself more as time passed about the odds that he could be okay or even alive. Within the last couple of months, life has started to feel less terrible. Not like it used to be, but somewhat better. Therapy for me and mom has helped, but most of it has been time. I realized last week I had gone an entire day without thinking about Michael, and it made me both relieved and terribly sad. And then this morning I opened my door to go to work and found the box. It was of thick, high-quality cardboard, though it was ragged in spots and had several stains along the top. A little larger than a cake box, it was tied with a rough twine string that I had to saw at to cut with a kitchen knife. There was no writing or label so I was slightly leery of opening it at all, but my curiosity and growing dread told me I had to know what was inside. When I took off the top and looked inside, I stopped breathing. The box contained Michael's face. Not his literal face, but a yellowish mask of it. A death mask. My skin crawling I reached out and touched its surface, already knowing what I'd feel. It was made of wax. And my God. It was screaming. 